you're gonna stop me from playing? You'll see. One day I'm gonna be the best. Perhaps not technically the best, but arguably the most famous accordion player in an extremely specific genre of music. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to another edition of This Is Comp, a subseries of Discord and Rhyme where we talk about compilations, box sets, and homegrown playlists, artist by artist, song by song. You can get early access to these episodes by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod. I'm Rich Bennell. I'm Dan Watkins. And we are joined by a special returning guest. Jennifer Carmen. Welcome back, Jen. Well, I guess I just saw you. For, for, yeah. for listeners who are unfamiliar with Jen, Jen and I are married. Yes. And she has joined the podcast a couple of times to talk about Daft Punk, Eurovision, and I think like the now that's what I call music series. Yes, that's right. So mm-hmm. yeah, when you when you need people to talk about really famous songs and not get into like the the really detailed obscure stuff that you guys do, that's when you can call me. Woohoo! Yeah, Jen is a very reliable pinch hitter for pop music. And both, uh, Dan, both you and Jen are from Birmingham, Alabama. That's right. Roll Tide. (laughs) (laughs) Three non-football fans. Yeah. (laughs) And and not Birmingham, England, home of Duran Duran and the Moody Blues, and therefore a very important city to this podcast. Yes. (laughs) No, we we don't pronounce it that way in Birmingham. Birmingham. Yeah. That's how I say it. (laughs) I'm fancy. It's true. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so this week we are continuing our, well, our, not my strange experiment of discussing every song in Weird Al Yankovic's polka medleys of contemporary popular music. And today we're going to be talking about the first seven songs on his medley, Polka Your Eyes Out, from his 1992 album, Off the Deep End. But first, there is some Weird Al news to talk about. We all watched the brand new film. Weird the Al Yankovic story this weekend. First, Dan, what did you think of it? It was it was pretty fun. Um, yeah, that's I, I'll, I'll go ahead and get get this out of the way that it's unfortunate that it did come, you know, about a decade after Walt Card. So it's, <laughs> it's hard not to pick up some similar comedic beats, but for, on its own, it is really funny. I enjoyed it. Yeah. It also follows on uh, the Andy Samberg Lonely Island movie pop star Never Stop, Never Stopping, which is also uh a biopic parody. So I feel like we, you know, we can have a new one of those every few years, but I also agree. There were a lot of very, the the walk hard vibes were very strong with this movie. Yeah, that that is, it is unfortunate. It's not nearly as good as either walk hard or pop star, which are both amazing, but it's worth watching. It is easily, I I had a good time. It is easily the best movie that I've seen on the Roku channel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it, yeah, they're one for one as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. we can check out all of the Quibi uh, things that they <laughs> that they have now. Is that where it went? <laughs> That's what I've yep. heard. So. <laughs> wow. It's got to go somewhere, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I have some context for the medley before we dive into the songs. So Polka Your Eyes Out is an interesting medley. It's actually probably my favorite one he, that he ever did, and I think that's a pretty common opinion because it's also the only one to appear on one of his best of compilations. And there are a few reasons for that. So you may have noticed that the first three medleys we covered all came out like one year after another, duh, 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 in like a dense cluster in the mid-80s, 1984, 85, and 86. But this one jumps all the way forward to 1992. And that's because his 1988 album, Even Worse, doesn't feature a polka medley. And the 1989 soundtrack to his movie UHF does have one, but it's called The Hot Rocks Polka, and it's a 100% Rolling Stones song. No, it's only rock and roll, but I like it. I know, it's only rock and roll, but I like it, like it, yes I do. 
And our co-hosts, John and Phil, are planning to cover that one as a bonus episode for our Patreon donors. It's it's really easy to get those two to talk about the Stones, but that one is more of a Stones hits compilation than a survey of popular music, so it doesn't really align with the mission of this series. So I'm going to skip it for the main feed. And another reason for this big gap is that the late 80s and early 90s were sort of Weird Al's wilderness years. So UHF was a flop. And he spent the turn of the decade, like, gradually recording new material, but otherwise waiting for, like, the next big sensation to show up in popular music. And as as we all know, that sensation turned out to be Nirvana, whose Smells Like Teen Spirit inspired the first single from off the deep end, Smells Like Nirvana. But the album's prolonged gestation period meant that a lot of huge changes were happening in popular music, not just Nirvana. And Polka Your Eyes Out charts a lot of these changes like right as they were happening. Like for me, this is probably Al's finest moment as a curator. So this should be an interesting set of songs to talk about. So shall we get to the songs? Yeah. Let's go. All right. So this medley starts with Billy Idol with the song Cradle of Love. And before we start the clip, so one thing is that like, so for this polka medley and the next one, Weird Al and his band start the medley by doing a perfect impersonation of the original song before it goes into the polka version. So that's what you're hearing right now. Rock the cradle of love Rock the cradle of love Yes, the cradle of love Don't rock easy, it's true Rock the cradle of love I rock the cradle of love Yes, the cradle of love Don't rock easy, it's true Rock the cradle of You know, as band impersonations go, that the beginning of that one was spot on. They, it, it's <laughs> identical. <laughs> so Cradle of Love was released in April 1990 as the first single from Billy Idol's fourth album, Charmed Life. It hit number two on the Hot 100 under Mariah Carey's Vision of Love. I had a vision of love And it was all that you've given to me Great song. Much better than Cradle of Love. (laughs) Dan, take it away. Well, despite becoming a household name in America with MTV, Billy Idol's punk rock bona fides actually go back to the original 70s punk scene. Uh, In 1976, he formed the London band Generation X, who became one of the first punk bands to appear on on top of the pops. (laughs) 
basically built to be a TV ambassador for punk from the beginning. Like he was just, he looked like a Halloween costume of a punk guy. He <laughs> <laughs> was perfect for it. The band released three albums before disbanding in 1981. And after that, Billy Idol moved to New York City to embark on his solo career. With the release of his self-titled debut solo album in 1982, he quickly became one of the first big MTV stars. Videos for Rebel Yell and Dancing With Myself which is directed by Toby Hooper, apparently. I did not know. <laughs> Here's Toby Hooper. He did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Oh. And yeah. uh, Poltergeist. <laughs> oh. Well, yeah. you know, he quote unquote directed Poltergeist. <laughs> hey, that's slanderous. <laughs> okay. But his videos received endless rotation on MTV and basically just made him an icon for the network. Hey, little sister, who is it you're Released in 1990, Cradle of Love would wind up being his last big hit single. This is really kind of the the end of the road for him. Uh, There is simply no way to discuss this song without talking about the David Fincher-directed music video. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, The basic storyline goes that you have this uptight, bespectacled businessman who gets a knock on his door and he opens it and this girl, you know, asks if she can play a tape on his stereo and he, you know, kind of obliges and let her, lets her in. And then she proceeds to do this steamy dance as he looks around the door, tugging at his collar and just, Ooh, you know, very nervously responding as she, you know, begins to have a uh, increasingly wild time smashing up his apartment and whatnot. Now, interestingly, the song was featured in the ill-fated Andrew Dice Clay film, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. The video features clips from the movie, but it just so happens that the Dice Man was banned from MTV by this point. So uh, supposedly none of the, the, the clips in the video feature Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah, well, so, so Jen and I watched all of the videos from this set, like, yesterday, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, th- like, uh, there's, like, a remastered version on YouTube that appears to actually have Andrew Dice Clay in the clips. We, but, uh, I mean, I, I, maybe my brain was fooling me, but he is a very distinctive-looking man. <laughs> he, he's, he's hard to miss. It might be an alternate version that, like, aired, you know, outside of MTV. I yeah. That's know, what I, I was wondering. Because there, there is one version I saw where in place of the film clips, you have these inserts of the guitar player just as generic cutaways. Uh, as for the video, it's one of the first videos I remember watching as a kid and really enjoying. 
and not for the reasons you might think. I was too young to really be like titillated by it, but I just found I mean, it's, it. It's David Fincher. It's super like colorful and stylish. It's so stylish. Yeah. It's just, and it's kind of funny. Like it's just such a wild video. It's very memorable. I, I always really liked it. Um, as for the song, I feel like it's kind of like the forgotten Billy Idol hit. I never hear it anymore. Yeah, um, I was I was thinking the same thing. I, I honestly like this is the first time I heard it outside of the polka medley, uh, <laughs> just preparing for this episode. Yeah, it's kind of novel hearing it. And to be honest, I wouldn't mind hearing this swapped out with Moni Moni and the Billy Idol mm. oeuvre. That's you know the the handful of songs you hear on the radio. But mm. uh, very very, I, I enjoy this song. Tasteful lyrics. <laughs> Catchy. <laughs> I enjoy it. Yeah, I'm less inclined to enjoy this as much as you, Dan. It, I don't know. This is this really isn't much of. It's fine, but it really isn't much of a song. That's like a one note hook right there, which isn't it a bad is. thing. You know, this is it, it's rock and roll, but there's just not like a lot of song surrounding it to really hook me in. Apparently, Billy Idol hates this song. <laughs> really. Yeah, that's a, a well, I mean, it, it is associated with like a very like dark period in his life because he was in a motorcycle accident. And actually in the video, like he, he only appears like uh, on a screen, like rotoscoped in a low frame rate from the torso up because he was like wearing a cast at the time. Well, and he was really banking on that Adventures of Ford Fairlane boost. <laughs> did not happen. But yeah, I think you're right. It, it really hasn't become part of the Billy Idol canon the way his earlier hits have. And actually, the um, the Hit Parade podcast, which we love to plug on this show, uh, they did a recent episode on what Chris Malanfi calls legacy hits, which are like songs that have like o- overtaken a band's bigger chart hits in the popular consciousness. Mm-hmm. And he lists Billy Idol as like one of the prime examples of this because, yeah, his biggest chart hits were this and, uh, and his cover of Moni Moni. But the songs you hear now are White Wedding, Rebel Yell, and Dan. Dancing with myself, which at the time, like barely registered on the charts. Wow. And, you know, th- that, that might be because they were MTV hits instead of radio yeah. hits. But e- either way, like there, there's been like an interesting sort of like reshuffling of his canon as time has gone on. Like the, the only song I can think of that still gets radio play that was a big chart hit at the time was Eyes Without a Face, which mm-hmm. I love that song. <laughs> But Jen, what do you think? Uh, so I am on Rich's side. Like, I, this is not my favorite <laughs> Billy Idol song. Like, the, well, because when we were listening to it, the first thought that I had was like, Billy Idol sounds really tired. <laughs> like, yeah. The, the, the enthusiasm in his voice is very distinctly lacking, I think, in this performance. And the way that I described it was that it's a Xerox of a Xerox of White Wedding. That yeah. it just feels like it's kind of going back to that same well with kind of less distinctiveness each time um and i also uh, like to your point rich of like how this is like al's best curated poker mix i would say that of all of the songs that are on here this is like the only one that that, that you won't still hear regularly and isn't really a famous song um which is interesting especially because it was such a big hit at the time and i also had a fun wikipedia fact to throw in for this which is that this is the only video that won billy idol and mtv vma for best video from a film because this was a video from the adventures of ford fairlane a movie of course that we all remember and have definitely heard of (laughs) wait the the category was best video that's like associated with a film yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, what a specific award. I know. Well, well that, that's, how you, that's how you fill a whole award ceremony with music video awards. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I, I, and I forgot to look up to see who else was nominated that year, but I'll have to, I'll have to look for my own interest. The Young Guns 2. Uh, <laughs> Probably. 1990, what are we doing here? This is uh, More on that later. Okay. <laughs> oh, and Jen, regarding like Billy Idol's vocal performance on this song, you know who does give a very spirited vocal performance of Cr- Cradle of Love? Alvin Seville. <laughs> <laughs> Stop robbing the cradle. He's a little scratchy here. Yeah, he is. There is much more enthusiasm in that performance than there is in the version that we just heard. Yeah, really sinks his teeth into it. Gives it rabies. Some gritty Alvin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that comes. Yeah, that's Alvin and the Chipmunks. And or I guess it's just Alvin technically. Oh, he got solo at this point. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, I I think it's all three of them. But like uh, this is from the album The Chipmunks Rock the House, which I did not own despite being a enthusiastic Chipmunks fan as a kid. Also, the intro to this song, instead of portraying a young woman going into the house of a middle-aged man to seduce him like, you know, teenage girls just do when they're hanging out. And um, it instead describes uh, Theodore trying to sing a lullaby. And this is like Alvin's version of a lullaby. So like this is supposed to be about rocking a cradle, like a, a literal, actual cradle. I don't know if they changed the line about like child brides. But maybe. (laughs) All right. I think that's enough about Cradle of Love. So let's go on to a song that we all that we do all remember, or at least I hope we do. This is DNA featuring Suzanne Vega with Tom's Diner. Tom's Diner was released in 1990, no precise month available, and you'll learn why in a second. And the song hit number five on the Hot 100. And number one that week was Because I Love You, open parentheses, the Postman song, close parentheses, by Stevie B. I got your letter from the Postman just the other day. So I decided to write you this song. Do either of you know this song? No. <laughs> yeah, get ready for a lot of adult contemporary schlock at the top of the charts. Weird Al fortunately did not put those songs into the Poke medley. Yeah, th- when Rich played that for me, my comment was like, when he got to the chorus, I was like, I think maybe I've heard this like in a Walgreens. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's where it belongs. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for our one star review that says, F- you, the Postman song is great. 
<laughs> okay, so Suzanne Vega was a folky at a time when it wasn't fashionable at all to be a folky, aka the 80s. She grew up in Manhattan listening to Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Leonard Cohen, Judy Collins, and Woody Guthrie. And it was seeing Lou Reed in concert in 1979 that convinced her that it was still possible to chronicle the urban world around her using the voice of a folk singer. So she signed to A&M Records and released her self-titled debut in 1985 and her sophomore album Solitude Standing in 1987. And the album was an instant hit thanks to the single Luca, a first-person account of child abuse that, despite its subject matter, managed to hit number three on the Hot 100. My name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. So the original version of Tom's Diner is the opening track on Solitude Standing, and in addition to being completely a cappella, the wordless chorus doesn't appear until the fade out. Oh, this rain, it will continue through the morning as I'm listening to the bells of the cathedral. I am thinking of your voice and of the Night picnic once upon a time before the rain began And I finish up my coffee and it's time to catch the train Yeah, and this recording was actually used when the MP3 format was being developed initially because it was, you know, it was like this really like clear acapella recording of a human voice and they wanted to see like whether or not uh, reducing the bit rate would have any effects on like human vocals. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, I've heard that Suzanne Vega is referred to as the mother of the MP3 by some people. <laughs> I wonder how she feels about that. <laughs> she loves it. Really? Uh, Suzanne Vega's cool. Hmm. So she actually discussed the original inspiration for her version of the song in a 2018 interview. The melody occurred to me as I was walking down Broadway. And when I wrote it, I was thinking of French New Wave films, Truffaut, sort of kind of like a jaunty little tune that might be out of, out of tune that you might hear at a bar. But I didn't have any money, and I didn't know any piano players. So I thought, why not be... It, it was the era of punk rock and new wave, so I thought, let's be really weird and just do it a cappella. I am sitting in the morning the I found, to my surprise, that it really worked when I sang it live. Yeah, so if Tom's Diner had appeared on a folk album in the 60s or 70s, it might have remained a curiosity. But this was the late 80s when DJs were starting to become a thing. And when a DJ hears an acapella track, their first instinct is put a fat beat under it. (laughs) Enter DNA. So DNA was the alias of English electronic music producers Nick Batt and Neil Slateford, who remixed Tom's Diner and released it as a bootleg in 1990. And it eventually made its way to Suzanne Vega, and AM Records said, hey, do you want to sue these guys? But instead, <laughs> she gave it her blessing, assuming that it would just become something that played in dance clubs. Instead, it became a huge radio hit, and by extension, Suzanne Vega's signature song. And it is so hot this song is hot (laughs) like i could wrap myself up in that bass like a big warm blanket and i I love how well vega's understated vocal like works on a dance track so we'll we'll get more Mm -hmm. into contemporary dance music in a couple of tracks but like typically when you have a female vocal on a dance song or you know you know just any like vocal playing over like a fat beat they really belt it out so that they can compete with the volume of the music and it's a testament to both vega as a vocalist and dna as engineers that like a calm unadorned vocal performance like this is able to stand out from the beat. It's remarkable. So hot. <laughs> Jen, what do you think? Yeah, so I 
yeah, I also really enjoy this song. I listened, it's, um, I loved this song as a kid. This is one of the songs probably from this mix that I most remember listening to a lot when I was younger. Although I can't remember if I actually heard this version first or the parody Nick at Night version that was released about <laughs> I Dream of Jeannie. Which oh, I actually <laughs> have a clip of that. <laughs> Here it is. Da, da. I am sitting on the sofa There's a TV in the corner I am watching Major Nelson He is played by Larry Hagman And he found a little bottle And out popped Barbara Eden But she couldn't show her belly button All she did was blink it's a full song like yep. they would air this like as a promo and it, it's like three minutes long yeah that was actually the first version of tom's diner i ever heard was that parody yeah uh, and, and by the way that parody is by mark jonathan davis who is a parodist who's also better known as uh, as lounge singer richard cheese yeah but uh, but i love the song tom's diner um i think I think it's one of the few songs that, like, it was really interesting listening to Suzanne Vega talk about the inspiration for that song um, and the French New Wave, because one of the things that I noted about it was that it's really a song that captures the mundane without being boring, uh, and yeah. that it's a scene that everybody is familiar with and that we can all picture ourselves in, but it's also very emo- evocative of that kind of setting and mood, and which is really... It's not the kind of thing that songs are usually about, <laughs> which is, but it's also a really enjoyable song. But listening to it a cappella, it like I've listened to the dance version so many times that the a cappella version feels incomplete without the dance beat. Like I just start filling it in <laughs> in mm-hmm. my head. But it also like listening to the a cappella version. It was really it's really remarkable. Even when you were playing this clip just now, Rich is like um, Suzanne Vega's ability to stay on rhythm and in key without any kind of accompaniment. Like that's really really hard. And because especially you can hear a couple of parts where she uh, deliberately goes off key, and she mentioned that in the interview too. And then returns to the regular key. Like for most of us, for us mere mortals, if you go a little bit off key, you kind of stay off key. <laughs> And coming back to where you were is really hard. And so I thought that was really impressive uh, and really cool to listen to. And also what makes it a good match for dance music, because it also is like this same sequence and this same beat that's very steady, which matches to like what dance music can contribute really well. Yeah. And there's also a couple of parts of the original acapella version where she's like behind the beat a little bit and not because she's like off the beat. It sounds like fully intentional, like she was expecting the beat to appear in this remix, even though she didn't know about it. Yeah. And that was kind of what it sounded like she was describing in the interview, that that was something that was deliberate. And that's just like that takes so much skill. Yeah. And I'll put the I'll put the interview in the show description and uh, regarding the lyrics. So I I guess I I haven't mentioned this yet, but Tom's Diner is the same as Tom's Restaurant, which is uh, it's on the upper it's in the Upper West Side in New York. And it's the same restaurant that's the exterior for uh, the restaurant in Seinfeld. I actually ate there once and it was mediocre, but they're, you know, they're, they are not hurting for customers between those two like cultural associations. Well, was it very evocative of a time and place and mood, Rich, being there? Uh, it, it was evocative of the first time I went to New York, which was very exciting. Mm. <laughs> that, that's why I did all the touristy stuff. But yeah, also like just the lyrics are, spo- in that interview, she mentions that like, you know, it, it's, it's, 
it, it captures the mundane, but it also like sort of like is supposed to capture like a feeling of like alienation. And that's like, like why she mentions like opening up the paper and she sees like, you know, an act, uh, the story of an actor who died while he was drinking and she didn't know who he was. And by the way, that actor was apparently William Holden star <laughs> of Br- bridge on the river Kwai and network and a huge drinker. Hmm. Like star of the bridge on the river Kwai. All right. <laughs> He's one of the stars of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but like, I, yeah, I guess that's just not what I think of first when I think of Bill Holden. Sorry. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, a great actor anyway. Uh, Dan, what do you think? I, I'm just so happy that other people remember the Nick at Night commercial. <laughs> I, I thought that was just a side effect of me watching way too much TV as a child, but apparently it left its mark. <laughs> I didn't know that this was originally acapella until relatively recently. I, I, I forgot why I even went down the rabbit hole, looked up the original song, and was I was just convinced that this was the original Suzanne Vega track. I had no mm-hmm. clue that it was a remix. Um, have either of you watched the deleted scenes of Pulp Fiction? No, I no. haven't. I mean, I, I, I mean, I love Pulp Fiction, but I think that there's enough of it. No, oh, there certainly is. <laughs> but there, there is a scene where it is revealed that John Travolta's character, Vincent Vega, is oh. the cousin of Suzanne Vega. Oh. oh. <laughs> that does sound like a Tarantino thing to do. So <laughs> in the Tarantino verse, the Vegas are related. Does Suzanne Vega appear? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. no. Okay. no. Well, they're in L.A. in uh, Pulp Fiction, so I guess, you know, they must have parted ways opposite <laughs> of the coast. But uh, I, I, I like this one a lot. This one is so early 90s to me because mm-hmm. I don't really ever hear this in the wild at all. So when I do hear it, it takes me straight back to like 1991. Uh, I also, one last thing is that I also think this might be the first example, or at least like one of the primordial examples of like a producer and the artist credit with the vocalist getting the featured credit. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty common mm-hmm. parlance in electronic music now, but it was really rare at the time. And actually the specific song it makes me think of the most is Praise You by Fatboy Slim. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, which is based on an acapella snippet from the song Take Your Praise by Camille Yarbrough. And then Fatboy Slim puts a beat under it. Okay, so let's move on to a song that I needed to do absolutely no research about because I've been like just living it my whole life. This is the B-52s with Love Shack. The Love Shack is a little old place where
beer. That's where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So Love Shack was released in June 1989 as the third single from the B-52's fifth album, Cosmic Thing. It hit number three on the Hot 100, and number one that week was the much less interesting song, When I See You Smile by Bad English. Oh, God. Monster Ballad. Yeah. (laughs) Classic Monster Ballad. It is, in fact, in the Monster Ballads commercial. Yes. We watched that commercial just yesterday, Jen, and it's, like, framed by this, like, uh, these two people skydiving. That's right. They were having a a skydiving wedding, I think. Oh, that's what it is? I think. Anyway, not nearly as good as Love Shack. And (laughs) there comes the one-star review from the bad English fan. We're going to go for the bingo here. (laughs) So we talked about the B-52s more than three years ago. Wow. In our episode on their 1980 album, Wild Planet. So if you want a history of their early days in Athens, Georgia, go check that one out. I had a lot of fun putting together that episode. So Cosmic Thing was their big comeback album after the death of guitarist Rick Wilson, who passed away during the production of their fourth album, Bouncing Off the Satellites. The group took a break and then carried on as a quartet of vocalists Fred Schneider, Kate Pearson, and Cindy Wilson, and multi-instrumentalist Keith Strickland, who switched from drums to lead guitar, and the rest of the ensemble was filled out by session musicians. So on the surface, Cosmic Thing is an upbeat party album, but given the circumstances, there is like this persistent undercurrent of melancholy and nostalgia to the songwriting. And the, the titular love shack in this song could be a reference to any number of little old places where they would get together in Athens and, you know, get drunk and party because the B-52s like to party. But the most direct influence was an Athens night spot called the Hawaiian Halle, which drew a wide range of very colorful characters from the University of Georgia and the surrounding area. And it apparently did, in fact, have a rusted tin roof, <laughs> which inspired Cindy Wilson's outburst at the end of the song. What I love about that part is that, like, Fred Schneider, like, has, like, a look of horror on his face for at least three seconds before he says that. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> He's so surprised. Anyway, I could talk for hours about Love Shack, literally. It was one of the songs that eventually, like, pointed me away from listening to nothing but Weird Al. You know, (laughs) not not the worst life in the world. But in the context of this medley, the song is interesting to me because, like, popular music was already rapidly changing in 1989. And by the time the B-52s released their follow-up album, Good Stuff, in 1992, just DJs wouldn't play them anymore. Hmm. And there's a song on there called Hot Pants Explosion that, like... (laughs) could not be more out of sync with what was on the radio in the early 90s. It just it took just a few years to wipe the B-52s off the chart. You burned a hole in my mind When I saw your cute behind I like to imagine like there being like a Blue Oyster Cult style like a uh, B-52's behind the music episode where they're recording Hot Pants Explosion and thinking it's going to be like their next big single. <laughs> and then like they see like a news flash on TV that says like, news alert, never mind released. And they all go, oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> so what do you guys think of this song? I, I mean, it's so ubiquitous that mm-hmm. I-, I feel like there is an anti-Love Shack contingent, but I find it just so aggressively likable Mm-hmm. that I don't know how anyone really dislikes Love Shack, even if I don't, it would never be my favorite B-52 song. I mean, I think even on that album, Deadbeat Club would probably 
edge ahead of this one. Oh, well, um, well Rome is like the big classic yeah, from Cosmic Thing as far as I'm aware. Like few songs are better than Rome for me. Who pro- was it? Did Don Waz produce this album? Is that who produced oh, it? Okay, so uh, it was it was produced by Niall Rogers and Don Was, oh. but like Niall Rogers was who they hired to produce it, but he wasn't available immediately. So Don Was produced a few songs for them, and then they had some extra time, so they just like knocked out Love Shack <laughs> with him. Because for like a 1989 pop song, it is fairly timeless in its production. I mean, it's so crisp, but it doesn't have any of like the 80s artifact on it like it, it sounds really great that's a funny observation like talking about the producer of walk the dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> but um I- i'm surprised you did not sneak in a glove slap the uh <laughs> that's zombie simpsons <laughs> it's like after season 10 so i'm much less likely to clip it but yeah there, there was yeah. a parody of this on the simpsons called glove slap glove slap baby glove slap mm. Why? Oh, it was like a, there, there was an episode. I, I can't remember the context because like Simpsons episodes were so fragmented by that point. But yeah. it was like oh, Homer got the idea that he could like get whatever he wanted by slapping people with a glove and challenging them to a duel. Okay. And then somebody eventually accepts his challenge. And that becomes like the plot of the episode. Okay. It was that the beginning of that Simpsons uh, format where the first five minutes of the episode had nothing to do with the rest of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jen, what do you think of Love Shack? So it's funny you were saying you have so much to say about it because I'm like, what is there to say about Love Shack? Yeah. Like we all like I just have it's it's basically a distillation of joy and fun. And like we all it's one of those songs that's so well known. I guess it's I think that you've talked about these kinds of songs before of just like they almost feel like air, you know, just they're so, yeah. like they're so ubiquitous that you're like you don't even necessarily think about them as songs, even though there's a lot of like musical complexity in this song. Like there's a lot of complexity in the harmonies and like one of the things I know that you mentioned, Rich, is that this is, you know, as they say in hip hop, a posse cut. This is one of the few. It is. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> that it includes uh, extensive vocals from Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson and Fred Schneider, which is not typical for their songs. And there's like. Yeah, that's something I realized like while while I was listening to this song actually because like i mean the band has three very distinctive vocalists but like it's pretty rare to have a song that just trades off between the three of them doing like little sections like usually kate and cindy sing together yeah so my proposition for this song actually is that because it has these different pieces highlighting different members of the band but also because there's a major stylistic change toward the end before it gets into the either you're what suggest that this is the b-52s uh version of the chain (laughs) (laughs) except they hate each other far far less yeah except that they yeah that they're that without yeah that and i actually had another note um of like how this kind of i'm not an expert on the b-52s um and like even with especially not within my what yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> especially not within my household. But it is an interesting place where the B-52s were in their history because they were – this is like the place where they transitioned their, Im- their image from fringe campy to mainstream campy. Like the way that I think of it is yeah. like the going from early seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race to current seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race or going from like <laughs> drag and gay clubs to drag queen story hour. Um, which appropriately RuPaul also features in this music video in like her first national TV appearance. Yeah, I was going to say like there is a RuPaul connection. Yeah. Um, So it's interesting like where this kind of fits in for the B-52s as a band. Like you mentioned that they didn't get much radio play after this, but after this they were kind of like pop culture icons. (laughs) Like I remember like, but they also were very, they, they transitioned to a very family friendly image. Like, uh, Mm. you know, they appeared in like the Flintstones movie and like, yeah. And Pete and Pete, like they, and like the way that I think about it is that like the love shack would be a totally acceptable song to play at a preschool, which is very different from songs, you know, like, uh, strobe light from, uh, uh, from wild planet, which features the line, I'm going to kiss your pineapple. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, though, though, though apparently you cannot play Love Shack at a Disney wedding. Really? Uh, because it is too sexual. What? Why? By Disney standards. Interesting. I don't know. It's just a factoid I looked up about the song. Love Shack <laughs> is banned from Disney weddings at Disney World. And Disney How theme many parks. songs are banned then? Yeah. I mean, it's got to be a pretty strict bar. There's there's one song from this mix we'll be talking about today that I imagine is banned from Disney weddings for that reason. But yeah. it's funny that you say that because one of my notes about Love Shack is like, this must be a wedding staple. How many weddings oh, have God. I heard this at? But I also can't think of ever any place that I've specifically heard Love Shack because it's like specifically recalling like having a glass of water at a wedding. <laughs> it's just like, I'm sure it's been there and I just have never noticed. Yeah, I imagine if 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 you start like just a party playlist on Spotify, this song just appears as like the the blank space, like on a bingo card. All right. But yeah, as I said, we I, I could talk about Love Shack just for the rest of this episode, but we have four more songs to get through. <laughs> so let's uh, let, let's get on to some house music. This is Technotronic with Pump Up the Jam. Pump up the jam. Pump up the jam. Pump up the jam. Pump it up. Pump it up while your feet are stumping And the jam is pumping Look ahead, the crowd is jumping Pump it up a little more Get the party going on the dance floor See, cause that's where the party's at And you find out if you do that Pump Up the Jam was released in August 1989 and hit number two on the charts underneath How Am I Supposed to Live Without You by Michael Bolton. Ooh, it's a good one. Tell me how am I supposed to live without you? Now that I've been loving you so long. Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway, house music. Or as Netflix's subtitles for the show Dairy Girls refer to it, dynamic disco. (laughs) (laughs) A term that we looked up to see if that was maybe Irish slang and we could not 
confirm. If you're Irish and can confirm that the slang, that the word or that the term dynamic disco means anything, uh, write in, I guess. <laughs> I just wanted to stump for Dairy Girls. Great show. Great soundtrack. <laughs> we just watched the whole thing in like a week. <laughs> and the name dynamic disco is actually not far from the truth, honestly, in regard to house music. So disco was the predominant form of American popular music in the late 70s. But once it started to fall off the charts in the early 80s, you, you know, on account of like disco demolition night and, you know, racism and homophobia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, disco didn't disappear exactly. It just went underground and transformed into house music. So the disco scene had brought about a thriving club culture, particularly in New York and Chicago. And even though disco music had fallen out of the popular consciousness, clubs still served an important role as a safe haven for members of the black, Hispanic, and LGBTQ communities. And for more on this, I highly recommend the 1990 documentary Paris is Burning, which Jen finally got me to watch this year, and it's great. So by the mid-80s, aided by advances in technology, DJs were experimenting with new ways of mixing their sets, adding synthesizers, samplers, effects processors, and drum machines to songs to establish a a steady 4-4 rhythm for the dance floor. And Chicago DJ Frankie Knuckles, often referred to as the godfather of house, not the mother of the MP3, just to, <laughs> just to clarify, <laughs> different title. He would take classic dance records and use a reel-to-reel tape machine to add percussion breaks and change the tempo and extend breakdowns. And the first house record to really take off and establish the genre as a single was the 1984 song On and On by fellow Chicago DJ Jesse Saunders. These things inside my soul, they make me lose control, goes on and on. So house music is the foundation of basically all of electronic dance music as we know it today. And it especially exploded in Europe where DJs spun it out into innumerable micro genres. So Technotronic was a project by Belgian electronic musician Joe Bogert, who performed under the alias Thomas De Quincey, and he released an instrumental single in 1989 with the title The Pro 24s, which heavily samples the the Eddie Murphy routine Delirious. So be warned if you have kids around. (laughs) You don't have no dick control when you're 18. Yeah, so it's just pump up the jam without the stuff, and plus Eddie Murphy. <laughs> but Bogart got the idea to fuse house music with hip hop, and he recruited Congolese Belgian rapper Yakid K to lay down some rhymes over a remix of the Pro 24s, now retitled Pump Up the Jam. So this infusion of hip hop helped the single take off in the States, where it was actually the first house single to become a hit by, by a lot of standards. And so the full-length Pump Up the Jam album is actually pretty great. It has two songs you may already be familiar with. Get Up, exclamation point, open parentheses, Before the Night is Over, close parentheses. Get up on your feet before the night is through for you. Get down to the beat. Pump it, stump it, jam, trip on this. Get the- and Move This, which you probably know as Shake That Body. Uh-huh. Shake That Body. Shake That Body. Yeah, Rich played that for me yesterday, and I was like, oh, of course this is the same group. (laughs) And I never – it's one of those songs that I never thought about, you know, who made that, (laughs) that it had Mm -hmm. to come from somewhere. 
I was completely unaware that Technotronic had three hit songs, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I just assume it's all just one factory that pumps these things yeah. out in the early 90s. Yeah. <laughs> the Technotronic factory. Yeah. The CNC Music Factory. <laughs> there hey. you go. Anyway, so it's, yeah, Technotronic is not exactly music to listen to as you sit by the fire, but, you know, that's not the point. Uh, I went for a run to this album yesterday, and it was ideal for that. It's, like, supposed to get you moving. It's supposed to get your heart rate up. It's more like body music than brain music, but sometimes you need that. I thought that that body music versus brain music was, like, a really good way of describing this. The way that I think of this is, like, and I really like dance music, but I think of this song as being something that's more important than something that I, like, seek out um, because it's this song like a lot of dance music is really meant to be played in the background while you're doing something else usually dancing and often doing drugs but it's is a really important song for ma- or for mainstreaming house music because while there's a lot of like the you know the same kind of driving beat over and over again and the same like so, uh, lyrics over and over again um, it's very catchy and it's very memorable um, and it's not weird or threatening <laughs> so it's something sur- suburban kids can play without their parents turning it off uh, which is how this kind of music finds new fans you know and so it's actually kind of like Love Shack in that way and there's yeah. nothing and so it's really an entry point for this kind of music, I think. And I'm sure that a lot of people found uh, house music and dance music because of this song. And so that's that's cool. Yeah, and I should say that uh, the, it's it's commonly theorized that the uh, that the house music refers to the Chicago club, the warehouse, which hmm. was a little old place where you could get together. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, you strike me as a house music guy. You listen to nothing but house music day and night, right? Always. I, uh, when I saw this song on the, uh, the show notes, yeah, I thought, oh yeah, I know this song. And then when I listened to it, I realized I barely remember this chorus <laughs> at all. And what made me realize was that I primarily know this from the three second clip that appeared in the Jock Jams commercial yeah, in the mid <laughs> 90s. So we got monster ballads and we got Jock Jams. Yeah. We just got to get like what Freedom Rock next. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I will say this is not the, the only song in this group that is on the Jock Jams volume one CD. There's another one coming up. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Future comps, I assume, for the show. I've been pushing oh, yeah. for it. I've been pushing for that one. <laughs> Despite uh, Rich's uh, mistaken uh, identification of my musical taste, I uh, do not know much about house music. Uh, And this to me just- what? I know. (laughs) Like, this just sounds like NBA jam music to me, Mm -hmm. which is fine. But I- um, have no, I don't know what else to say about it. It's fun. <laughs> well, speaking of NBA Jam, it was used in Space Jam, apparently, which oh, was I, it? I've never seen. Uh, th- that is a big part oh of like, God. yeah, I know. You're what? <laughs> <laughs> I know. That is like a big, like, generational touchstone that I never encountered. Yeah, I remember being excited about it when it came, came out. out. Yeah, I know. I was like, I'm 13. This looks good to me, but I never saw it. Yeah. I'll tell you this if you haven't seen it yet, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> You're not going to watch it in 2000 or 2022 and go, oh, yeah, I, I'm glad I caught up with this. Well, now I'll just watch the sequel, yeah. which apparently has a re-recording of Pump Up the Jam in it. <laughs> Pump up the jam, Ali, ooh, catch the slam, yeah, do it for my fans, all I see is flashing cam. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on to a song that is the, as far as I can tell, the opposite of Pump Up the Jam. Because this is a wild polka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is R.E.M. with Losing My Religion. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Losing my religion. Trying to keep a view. And I don't know if I 
That's my favorite part. I haven't said enough. Religion was released in February 1991, and it hit number four on the Hot 100. So number one that week was Rush Rush by Paula Abdul. And number two was I Wanna Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. Quite a one-two punch right there. <laughs> that is good. The charts. With R.E.M., we actually have our second band from Athens, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A group of songs here. Uh, in 1980, Michael Stipe met Peter Buck, who was working at Luxtree Records, which I've actually shot that before nice. in Woo! Athens. Um, the two of them struck up a friendship over their shared taste in music and decided to form a band, bringing in fellow University of Georgia students Mike Mills and Bill Berry. Their independently released first single, Radio Free Europe, became a college radio hit, ultimately landing them a deal with IRS Records for the release of the Chronic Town EP and the full-length debut, Murmur. next few years, the band basically helped pioneer alternative and college rock radio. No big deal, you know. (laughs) And they eventually branched out to more commercial radio play. And with the release of their 1987 album Document that had the singles, The One I Love and It's the End of the World as we know it, open parentheses and I Feel Fine, close parentheses, they really hit a new level of fame. That's great, Starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes, an aeroplane, and Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn world serves its own needs, dummy serve your own needs, beat it up and not. And with the next album, they signed with Warner Brothers Records, and with 1991, the album Out of Time, it really marked the point where they had made the full transition from indie band made good to one of the biggest bands in the world. Now, my history with R.E.M. is a little complicated. Growing up, they were my sister's favorite band. And as a pain in the ass little brother, I was not allowed to like the things that she liked. <laughs> so I very much did not like R.E.M. And especially the Out of Time album, I associate with 
she was learning to drive at the time. And so I was in the back seat with this CD playing constantly while she was learning how to drive. <laughs> so that was my getting to know this era of REM. And it wasn't until college that I kind of heard people with music taste I trusted speak highly of REM. So I reevaluated REM. Uh, this song, I, I kind of find it hard to judge because it's just so big. Um, and my feelings are so strange about R.E.M. <laughs> around <laughs> this time. I like it, but, uh, you know, I, I lean more toward the the mumbly early R.E.M. So this big belting out the words, clearly Michael Stipe era, I'm a little fuzzier on. Now, the video for this was all over the place and it is pretty wild. Uh <laughs> Full of mm -hmm. biblical imagery. Um, I don't know. Do, do you guys have happier feelings about <laughs> REM from this time period than well, I do? Well, regarding the music video, it was it was directed by Tarsum Singh, who later directed The Cell and The Fall. Uh, oh. Not the band The Fall, the movie The Fall. <laughs> but yeah, like, a, well, th th there is a funny, uh, I'll link to this in the show description. There's a funny, like, Weird Al kind of mystery science theater style riff on Losing My Religion video where he adds a bunch of sound effects and stuff uh, <laughs> and commentary. And at the part where the guy lip syncs, consider this, Weird Al yells, consider this! <laughs> it's similar to the way that the, oh no, comes in for in the song itself in the polka medley. Like, <laughs> em emphasizing how, like the the melodrama of the original lyrics to make them funny. <laughs> but yeah, like I'm in, I'm also in kind of a weird place with REM. Honestly, like listening to them makes me kind of sad. Like I'm looking into my brain from high school and there's like a, a feeling of you can never go back again because they were one of my favorite bands back then. And I actually saw them in concert three times. And wow. like I, I still think they're like a great, important band. They haven't like grown off me necessarily. Like I think there's still plenty of wonderful qualities to their music. But like, I don't know, like I, a lot of bands have like I've carried them with me into adulthood and REM just aren't one of those bands. It feels like that era of my life has has come and gone. I, I think that's part of why we haven't covered them on the show yet. There's like an enthusiasm gap. And I, I don't want to piss off any REM fans. Again, they're a great band, but just like sometimes you just you just leave bands behind. And this is one of those cases. And I'm sure we'll cover them. I know they're they're there's some enthusiasm, just maybe not with the two of us. So uh, similar to both of you, my note for this is this is the soundtrack of teen angst. It like brings <laughs> me back to a very specific emotional place of being an angsty teen. But I, I never really had an REM phase. Like REM was not a band that I listened to very much. Like the actual soundtrack to my angsty teenage years were anime soundtracks. <laughs> But this song specifically brings me back to that time and place. And I think that's just something about this song, like the way that it's composed, the key that it's in, all of that. But I also had a question for Dan as a fellow person who is from the South. So that because allegedly the song Losing My Religion is not about losing your religious faith. When Michael Stipe was asked about it, he said this is about the phrase losing my religion is Southern slang for getting angry, like, you know, like losing your cool or whatever. Have you ever heard the phrase losing my religion used that way outside of this song? Not once. Same. <laughs> Maybe it's a Georgia thing. Well, you know what I learned? I didn't know this, but the only true Southerners in the band were Mike Mills and Bill Berry. Oh. oh. 
Where's I didn't the- know that because I think uh, Mike Michael Stipe was a military brat who moved around, uh-huh. and Peter Buck was from California. But you know, they're they're a southern band, but mm-hmm. eh, not really. They're not, they're not southern rockers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, my family is from up north, so I'm not like I grew up in Alabama, but I don't live there anymore. Um, so I I'm like. I'm like, I don't know how much Southern identity I can really claim. But I also was like, I've never heard that phrase in my no. entire life. No. I don't know what you're talking about, Michael Stipe. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm glad that based on our sample size of two people, I've gotten some backup for this because I've always wondered about that when We're I hear covered. this. We're covered. We're good. Yeah. You made it up. Yeah. We, we represent everybody. It's fine. <laughs> Oh, and Jen, you mentioned the key of losing my religion, which reminds me. So one of the better YouTube videos that exists is that somebody took losing my religion and remodulated it into a major key. (laughs) (laughs) That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Losing my religion. I think they just use like auto-tune to do this. It sounds very folky. And I don't know if I can. That's something we all can enjoy. <laughs> it's like the opposite of when they make a song sad for a movie trailer. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but also, like, one thing I want to uh, talk about more broadly about REM is that, like, so, so like, uh, and I alluded to this earlier, the whole narrative of American chart music in the early 90s was that, like, Nirvana showed up and just annihilated everything and, like, music instantly became more raw and angsty. But I don't know, like, I, I think it's more accurate to say that, like, Nirvana were, like, the vanguards, the figureheads of like a wider trend that had been building kind of toward this moment because like losing my religion, it, it, it peaked on the hot 100 several months before smells like teen spirit came out. Like th- th- there was already like a growing audience for music that was sort of earthier than music of the eighties. And like, it, and it's not, it's not like this music came out of nowhere. Like REM had been, had been making music like this for a decade. This is probably the most like typical sounding REM song on out of time. <laughs> it, it just hadn't exploded into a whole movement yet. Yeah. I When we watched this video together and we're talking about when Rich and I watched this video together, I asked him, I was like, did this come out before or after Smells Like Teen Spirit? Because this, this comp comes from like songs from 1991, which surprised me. I didn't realize that Losing My Religion was older than mm-hmm. Smells Like Teen Spirit because it sounded like such a something of such a piece with the alternative explosion that it yeah. was, yeah. Well, and Nevermind really didn't hit until like 92. Like it came out in 91, mm-hmm. but I feel like 92 was really the year that people responded to it and it really took off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll be getting to more music like this in the very next episode. I, I just thought that was something that was like interesting that it was like, it, you know, culture isn't like you flick a switch like that, like a, a Nirvana were like part of a wider trend. And also before we move on, I, I just, just in regard to Weird Al himself, he's shown an affinity for R.E.M. numerous times in his work. Like there's, of course, Spam, his parody of Stand, which is included <laughs> on the soundtrack to UHF. And his next album, Alapalooza, features a style parody of like early R.E.M. called Frank's 2000 Inch TV, which is actually one of the best original Weird Al songs of all time. Yeah, I like that one a lot. He really nails their sound. There's Frank's remote control. You can look, but don't touch it, please. Because Frank's the one in charge. 
And his next proper Polka Medley features another R.E.M. song, but we'll get back to that in due time. Okay, it's time for the single greatest song of this entire set. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't want to be snarky. Here's a song. This is EMF <laughs> with Unbelievable. The things you say, your purple just gives you away the things you say. You're unbelievable. again yeah (laughs) recurring character andrew dice clay yeah so before i get into the song so the o right there comes from a routine by andrew dice clay and i'm going to clip it but again if you have kids sitting around you might want to hit hit the skip forward button (laughs) oh mother hubby went to the cupboard to get her old dog a bone she bent over rover took over oh 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 And now you know the context, listeners. He was so famous in like 1990. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He sold out Madison Square Garden, right? Yeah. Wow. He was crazy big. Yeah. For a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. Like Vanilla Ice. (laughs) More on him later. (laughs) Yeah. So Unbelievable was released in October 1990 as the first single from EMF's debut album, Schubert Dip. And out of all of the songs in this episode, this is... This is the one that topped the Hot 100 in the U.S. This hit number one. Really? Yep. And Love Shack didn't. <laughs> Thanks, Michael Bolden. Good fact. So back in our series on the electronic compilation MTV's Amp, our guest Shivam Bhatt recommended a great book by Simon Reynolds called Generation Ecstasy, Inside the World of Techno and Rave Culture. And one of the book's running themes is that the texture of techno music tended to shift in response to like how the rave scene was collectively reacting to its drug of choice, which, of course, was ecstasy. So when ravers were happy and energized, the music tended to be bright and upbeat. When they eventually built up a tolerance and started to grow angry and violent, the music became darker and more aggressive. And when the rave scene blew up in the UK into a national fad and became omnipresent, loud, and obnoxious, you got bands like EMF. (laughs) So EMF, whose name stands for either Ecstasy Motherfuckers or Epsom Mad Funkers, arrived at the height of Madchester, which is a dance scene centered around the Hacienda nightclub in Manchester, England. So some of the bands in the scene were local to Manchester, like the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays, but its influence was present in bands throughout the UK, including Primal Scream from Glasgow, the Charlatans from the West Midlands, and EMF, who formed in the Forest of Dean region in Gloucestershire, England in 1989. So the band consisted of James Atkin on vocals and guitars, Mark DeClote on drums, Ian Dents on keyboards and guitars, Zach Foley on bass, and Derry Brownson on keyboards and samples. So that was him who pulled that Andrew Dice Clay sample right there. You can thank him for that. (laughs) And actually, their follow-up single, Lies, apparently originally opened with Mark David Chapman reciting the first two lines from John Lennon's single, Watching the Wheels, until Yoko Ono rightly objected and it was pulled. Yeah, charming lads, these fellows, is what I'm saying. Anyway, Unbelievable is the most annoying song ever written. What do you guys think? (laughs) I have some amount of affection for it's so ridiculous and stupid. I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, 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 I can see that. Yeah. 
I mean, it really does feel like Madchester on training wheels. <laughs> I mean, beautiful. And I'm not a big Madchester guy, really. Uh, but this it reminds me so much specifically of like 1990 MTV <laughs> that I have some affection for it. Uh, it is really dumb, but I kind of like it. So uh, one thing I have a note about is that the polka version is one of the few polka songs in this medley that actually incorporates the in- the instrumentation in a recognizable way. Like the accordion comes into the duh, 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 like, but faster, of course. But like, that's actually like one of the, like, in most of the songs on this, like it's just other instrumentation, like polka instrumentation, but not for this song, which is... Interesting. Um, but it's also funny how much, because also that's like the most memorable part of the song. Like even, yeah. even in the Al like pre-chorus part, like the, the things you say, like nobody remembers that part. Everybody remembers <laughs> the, you're unbelievable. Bow! No, da, 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 da. Like that's it. <laughs> but and, and that, that is also the one clip you hear at the Jock James volume one commercial. <laughs> <laughs> This is a good jock jam. I am ready for this. Is that included on a poker medley? It's gotta no, be. it's oh, not. It, I'm sad oh, to say. It's a shame. Yeah. But it, it's similar but similar to Dan, I'm like, I know that this song is stupid, and I know it's like annoying, but it's also like irresistibly catchy. <laughs> like, but I've also never actively sought it out. But no. it's not like, but it, do, it doesn't bother me. This was like the first time that I'd like really listened to the verses and the singing on the verses. And the way that the lead singer sings them and it's, and the overall structure of the song is actually kind of proto-gorillas. And <laughs> <Yes>. I have, a, <laughs> like there's a, definitely a Damon Albarn-ness to the way that he sings. And I pulled a specific clip of a song that I think is a good example that sounds similar to this. The world is spinning too fast. I'm fine that Nike issues to keep myself tethered to the days I try to lose. My mom, I said, slow down. You must make your own shoes. Stop dancing to the music. I've got red as in a happy mood. You're unbelievable. <laughs> it's, it's not a huge stretch. You're what? Yeah, but well, EMF was actually like a pretty big band in in the UK. Uh, my fun Wikipedia fact for this is that EMF had eight top forty hits in the UK. They had other songs. They had yep. Apparently, a bunch of other songs. That were they were all about sausage hit. rolls? <laughs> <laughs> I can only hope. I, I imagine that every song that's a hit in the UK and not here is just about sausage rolls. And <laughs> they actually released an album just this year. So not everything makes Wow. It. Yeah. <laughs> well, check it out if you want more EMF. Yeah. yeah and I did actually, not listen to it. Yeah. And I actually have a personal anecdote about this song. So I was uh, regarding the delivery. So I was like writing in the passenger seat of the car. My mom was driving and we had the 80s alternative radio station on and unbelievable came on. And when it got to the third verse, which goes like this. At that point, my mom said, this is rap. <laughs> Remember it super vividly. Just some classic pearl clutching right there. Yeah. Well, this is what I was talking about earlier of like the, how the, like all of these songs are kind of these like 
what's the word acceptable like they're kind of watered down versions of like much more like edgy scenes Mm -hmm. but yeah this is the version that like your mom won't (laughs) or maybe well your mom did i guess like say like this is wrong and we're turning this off (laughs) you're not listening to this (laughs) probably not the case for the next song (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we we never listen to the next song on the radio. So this is Belle Bib DeVoe with Do Me! Exclamation point. Do me, baby. Oh, do me, baby. Oh, you can do me in the morning. You can do me in the night. You can do me when you want to do me. as the second single from Belle Bib DeVoe's debut album, Poison. It hit number three on the Hot 100, and number three was Bon Jovi's Blaze of Glory from the film Young Guns 2. See, I told you it would be coming back. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> another video I liked a lot. <laughs> so, Bell Bib DeVoe consists of Ricky Bell, Michael Bivens, and Ronnie DeVoe, the three founding members of New Edition who weren't Ralph Tresvant or, or Bobby Brown. And much like their former colleagues, by the turn of the decade, Bell Bib DeVoe were at the forefront of a movement in black music called New Jack Swing. So, the name New Jack Swing was coined by journalist Barry Michael Cooper, who was the first black writer at the New York alternative publication, The Village Voice, and actually, <laughs> I believe, wrote their first article about hip-hop. So this Hmm. was during the depths of the Ronald Reagan administration when the crack cocaine epidemic was decimating black communities. And as Cooper later said in an interview, quote, I recognize this epidemic as evidence of a new subculture, one born out of tragedy, but a new subculture nonetheless, one in which serious money was being made by the crack dealers, these upstarts at the money game, these new jacks, members of the underclass monetarily joining the overclass. This paralleled elements of the Great Gatsby and the Jazz Age, end quote. So in addition to the social element, musically, New Jack Swing is a fusion of hip-hop and R&B, which are two very closely related genres today, but people rarely spoke of them in the same breath in the 80s. And the first landmark album for the genre was Janet Jackson's Control, which we've talked about several times on this podcast. But the producer who really blew it up into a whole phenomenon was Teddy Riley, who produced major New Jack Swing singles for artists including Bobby Brown, Samantha Mumba, Dougie Fresh, and Keith Sweat. If it's a dream, And as for Doomy, it's a 
pretty good song. But for me, the legendary Belle Bib DeVoe song is and always will be Poison. Yes. Yeah. Girl, I must warn you. I sense something strange in my mind. Yo. Situation is Let's cure it cause we're running out of time. I just wanted to hear Poison. Yeah. <laughs> so... Dan, what do you think of uh, not poison? So, Dan, what do you think <laughs> I love of <doing> poison? <laughs> I I find this kind of nondescript, to be honest. It, it feels kind of low effort. Poison rules, but this is just kind of I don't know. Just nothing about this really sticks with me. It does have those great uh, owner of a lonely heart orchestra hits. <laughs> yeah, well, th- those are all like over those. New Jack Swing. I mean, if you listen yeah. to like Rhythm Nation by Janet Jackson, like like I, I think of that album as like a tower constructed of orchestral hits. Well, isn't uh, also one of the weirder things that the Ghostbusters 2 soundtrack as a surprising landmark in the New Jack Swing? It is, genre? yeah. Well, it has a On Our Own by Bobby Brown, which is like... Which is uh, also a, great. Yeah, yeah, great song. And I mean, My Prerogative by Bobby Brown. Like, not a great person, had a few great songs. But uh, yeah, I don't have much else to say. This one just kind of passes me by. <laughs> You're not a New Jack Swing aficionado, Dan. <laughs> Well, this song in particular, this one specifically. Otherwise, yes, I love it. I do appreciate all the socio-political context you provided for a song featuring <laughs> lyrics like "You can do me in the morning" and "You can do me in the night." Yeah, <laughs> it's a silly song and it's part of the world, so yeah. I have to explore the world around it. It's awesome. So, in in lieu of a fun Wikipedia fact, I'm going to read the full Wikipedia description for the composition of this song. Composition. According to Billboard. <laughs> This song is about sex. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, Jen, because I'm I'm looking at the Merriam-Webster entry for the verb do as a transitive verb, and I see at least 22 different definitions of the word, including to treat with respect to physical comforts, to serve the needs of, and to approve, especially by custom, opinion, or propriety. I I see no evidence in this song that it's about sex. Okay. (laughs) No, yeah, it is. (laughs) Yeah, debate me. But I also like the way I do like the way that it's used in the polka mix. Um, I like this is the last song that we'll be talking about on this side. But once you get to the second half, two songs after this is the Humpty Dance, which also features the line "Do me, baby," and so it kind yeah. of like it's almost like a theme. I, I, I definitely <laughs> noticed that as a kid. Like Weird Al, Weird Al, you're saying "Do me" so many times, and then you got "I touch myself" too. But, like yeah. this is a dirty polka. Yeah, it's that's what, blue. Yeah, that's what I. My question is: Is this Weird Al's horniest polka? Oh, I, I mean, there there was the one with relax a couple of uh, and, mm. and sledgehammer but yeah in terms of like <laughs> sheer number of songs about sex yeah like i think this yeah. one wins but it's also a reflection of its time i mean like these were all hit songs around that time so yeah uh, yeah uh and <laughs> this is also going to sound kind of uh off the wall but the the what's funny about this is that in the original version of the song that Rich just played, like the you can do me in the morning, you can do me in the night is like the most memorable part of the song. But if you actually listen to it, that part doesn't come up until the very end. Yeah. Although it's like the last like minute of the song. It goes like like when it comes in, like you're like, yeah, it's this part of the song. And then you're like kind of sick of it by the, <laughs> by the time the song ends. <laughs> Structurally, it's like the original Tom's Diner in the part that it's <laughs> is at the end and also in the remix uh that part gets used a little bit more throughout the rest of the song yeah they knew what they had (laughs) 
love this song, but of the trio, I would say, the unofficial trio of New Jack Swing sex jams, I definitely prefer it to Color Me Bad's I Want to Sex You Up and perhaps controversially Boys to Men's I'll Make Love to You. Oh, well, is that a New Jack Swing song? I think of it as like... uh, Motown Philly by Boys to Men has some New Jack Swing going on. I think of like I'll Make Love to You as like a gospel ballad or something yeah but we're, 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 we're splitting hairs very godly <laughs> well you know gospel styled yes yeah I knew that i'll make love to you god yeah. <laughs> i i knew that it would be controversial to mention that one but i do i do also but nonetheless i do prefer do me to that song in that i don't I, yeah i guess it's more of like part of that scene more than it is like a part of that genre. Yeah. And regarding New Jack Swing, it's, it's funny because I think all three of us like emerged from like the fog of childhood amnesia, like around the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, me personally, like I remember like this being what all music sounded like for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that there was a name for this genre until like relatively recently. I'd never heard the term New Jack Swing until maybe a few years ago. I was like, oh, that's just what music sounded like when I was a kid. Well, the, the, <laughs> the first album I ever bought was uh, Dangerous by Michael Jackson. And the whole like first side of it is like these hard New New Jack Swing Jams by Teddy Riley. And that, that's my favorite part of the album, which is a mediocre album, but it has its moments. I'll stick with my Ghostbusters, too. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think that's it for this set. Wow, this was a long one. We th- These were some, like, heavy songs to unpack, especially Doomy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining me, both of you. <laughs> especially you, Jen, person who lives with me. Yeah. <laughs> It makes me an easy guest to get. So next episode, we will be closing out our current series with the second half of Pull Your Eyes Out, featuring a bunch of metal to varying levels of critical esteem and hits by Janet Jackson, The Digital Underground, The Divinals, and at long last, Vanilla Ice comes to Discord and Rhyme. <laughs> We've been waiting this whole time. All right, roll credits. What do you call this record with all these songs? Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. You can hear back episodes of this series and our regular album-focused episodes at discordpod.com. And you can also subscribe to Discord and Rhyme on your podcast app of choice. This closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and is based on the song This Is Pop by XTC, originally written by Andy Partridge. You can find Kenneth's music at bandcamp.com. Editing and production is by me, Rich Bunnell. We'll be back with more Polka in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep as cool as you can. Don't you talk to Billy Idol that way. <laughs>